Chapter 26 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 26. The Black Death. The men who lived in the 14th century were different in many ways from those of the 13th. It was not a time of great saints. The Crusades were over. Sometimes a prince or noble would get ready to go on a new crusade, but never went. There were great kings in the 14th century, but they were not such splendid men as St. Louis of France or Edward I of England. The great popes, too, had passed away. They no longer quarrelled with the emperors about ruling the whole world, for they soon found that they had no real power in ordinary matters over kings and princes, but only in matters of religion. For seventy years, indeed, the popes lived at Avignon in the south of France instead of at Rome, and were very much under the power of the French kings. In 1294, Boniface VIII became pope. He was full of the old ideas of Hildebrand and Innocent III about the greatness of the popes. He gave an order that in no country should priests pay any sort of tax to the state. Edward I of England, although he was a good and pious man, was very angry at this and made the priests pay their taxes all the same. Philip the Fair of France, the grandson of St. Louis, was very angry too, but Boniface took no notice. The next year he invited pilgrims to come from all parts of the world for a great feast in honour of the Apostles. People came in thousands and thousands, and Boniface was delighted. It took two men working all the time to shovel the offerings of money from the tomb of St. Peter. Meanwhile, the quarrel between the Pope and the French King went on. Philip declared that France was independent of the Pope. Boniface replied by threatening to take the French throne from Philip. At last, Philip sent some of his servants to attack Boniface in his palace at Agnani, up in the mountains near Rome. These men burst into the palace, threatened the Pope, and kept him prisoner for three days. Then his Italian friends went to his help. But Boniface had received a dreadful shock, and a few days after he died. He understood at last that the Pope was not all-powerful, and his heart was broken. Another Pope was elected, but died almost immediately. People said that he was poisoned by some figs, sent to him by the servants of the French king. The next Pope was a Frenchman, and it was he who chose to set up his court at Avignon, a town in the south of France, but which had been given to the Pope. For seventy years the Popes were Frenchmen and lived at Avignon. The Italians and the people of the other countries of Europe did not like this, because it gave the French kings too much power over the popes. People mocked and said that the pope was really a prisoner, and afterwards this time in the history of the popes was always called the Babylonish Captivity, a name taken from the seventy years during which the Jews had been kept captive in Babylon. The Hundred Years' War it seemed a very strange thing to people in the 14th century to have the popes living at Avignon, when they had lived at Rome during so many hundreds of years. But many other strange things happened too, 
and there was a great deal of discontent and excitement. The English and French people began a great war with each other, which lasted altogether for a hundred years. Sometimes it would stop for a few years, but never for very many. It was called the Hundred Years' War. It caused the greatest misery to the French people, and though for many years the English won most of the battles, it did them no good in the end. The war was begun by Edward III of England, the grandson of Edward I. Edward was like his grandfather in many ways, but he was not such an earnest man. He was a great knight and a good soldier, but the knights of this time were very frivolous and luxurious. They wasted days and weeks in tournaments and were very vain and extravagant in their dress. They loved fighting for its own sake. When his uncle, the King of France, died, Edward III said that he ought to be king because of his mother, who was the sister of the king. In France, women could not inherit the crown, and in any case there were other women with a better right than Edward's mother. But Edward really wanted an excuse for fighting the French. There were many reasons for the French and English disagreeing at the time. Ever since the days of Henry II, the English kings had had land in the south of France, and the French kings were always trying to win it from them. Then, too, the French and the English were both building more ships, and the sailors of the two nations often quarrelled on the seas. The first great fight of the Hundred Years' War was between the French and English fleets, and the English won. After this, the English were always greater at sea than the French. Edward's way of fighting the French was to land in the north of the country and march along, burning every village he came to. If a French army faced him, he would fight it, win a victory, march on, and then come home. But he never really made any use of his victories. Perhaps he knew that he had no real chance of winning France. His greatest victory of all was at the Battle of Crecy in 1347. This was won by the English archers, who fought on foot. These archers were men of the middle and poorer classes of Englishmen, and there were always a good many in Edward's armies. The French armies were chiefly made up of knights who fought on horseback. The archers were men from Genoa in Italy who fought with old-fashioned crossbows, while the English used the longbow. When the English archers shot at the French horses and knights, these were immediately thrown into disorder. Often the ground was soft and swampy, and the horses could hardly get along. As the years went on, nearly all the fighting in France was done by Edward's eldest son, the Black Prince. He led great armies, burning and destroying, through the south of France, causing the greatest misery to the people. In 1356 he won the great battle of Potiers and took the French king prisoner. The prince waited on the king at table and treated him with the greatest respect. The knights of the 14th century were always careful about these things, yet they could be terribly cruel. The Black Prince himself burned the town of Limoges to the ground and had all its people killed because they had offended him. King John was carried to England, but allowed to go back to France to try to collect his ransom. But France was miserably poor through the war and he could not get enough money. So he went back to England again and died a prisoner. In the year 1360, peace was made between England and France. The English king gave up his claim to the French throne, but was given the Duchy of Aquitaine, which covered nearly half of the south of France. 
For the next ten years there was peace. Edward III was now growing old, but the Black Prince died the year before him in 1376. Before he died, nearly all of Aquitaine had been won back by France. Edward III had grown very weak and foolish in his old age. He had never been a very good man, and in his old age he gathered round him wicked men and women. One woman stole the rings from his fingers as he lay dying, and left the old king to die alone. It is hard to believe that this was the same king who had been so gay and merry a few years before. It was Edward III who set up the Order of the Garter. It became the greatest honour to be made a Knight of the Garter, and it still is. Yet the beginnings of the Order were very peculiar. Once at a ball at the court of Edward III, somebody picked up a garter, and Edward immediately said that he would set up an Order of Knights who should wear a garter on the left leg as their special badge. It is sometimes said that Edward set up the Order of the Garter in honour of the taking of the French town of Calais by the English at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. The English had been besieging this town for many months, when at last it sent to ask for mercy from the king. Edward, who was very angry, said he would only let the people of Calais go free from punishment if they gave their city up, and also sent to him six of their chief men, dressed only in shirts with ropes round their necks and the keys of the city in their hands, and he would do what he liked with them. Six of the chief men of Calais offered to do this, and came before Edward and his queen Philippa. But the good queen was full of pity for them, fell on her knees crying, and begged the king to let them go free, and so he did. When Edward III died, his young grandson, the son of the Black Prince, became king of England. He was called Richard II, he was only a boy of sixteen when a great rebellion of the poor people of England broke out. It was called the Peasants' Revolt. The peasants in different parts of England rose in revolt against the rich owners of the land. Often they took scythes and other things with which they worked on the land for weapons. The peasants of Kent had for their leader a man called Wat Tyler. He persuaded them to march to London so that they could tell the king their troubles. When they got to London, the boy king rode to meet them and promised to try to make things better for them. But Wat Tyler, who must have been a bad man, led his men into the city and they burned houses and killed every servant of the king they could find. The next day, Richard rode out to meet them again. He was a tall, slim, handsome boy and looked very brave and noble as he faced the peasants. Wat Tyler rode up to speak to the king but he looked as though he was going to strike him, and the mayor of London, who was with the king, drew his dagger and stabbed him to the heart. He fell dead, and the mayor was afraid that the peasants would attack the king, but Richard rode bravely up to them and talked to them, while the mayor rode off and brought some soldiers to protect the king. The peasants, now that their leader was dead, went back to their homes again. The thing that they had complained about was a tax which the king had tried to collect from them. They said they were too poor to pay it. They had other troubles too. Three times during the 14th century, a terrible plague of sickness called the Black Death had spread over the countries of Europe from the east. People died in hundreds. Half the people in England altogether died of it, and especially the poorer people. In those days there were not, of course, nearly so many people in any country as there are today. 
in the whole of England there were not as many people as there are now in London. After the Black Death, the rich landovers found that there were not so many people as before to cut the corn and work on the land. Sometimes whole fields of corn had to be left to go bad because there were no labourers to cut it. Then the labourers, seeing that, asked for more wages. In the early days after the Norman conquest, the labourers had not had money wages, but had had small pieces of land for themselves, and were bound to work several days each week on the land of their lord. They were serfs. But for many years the lords had been letting the serfs go free, and were paying wages to the labourers. Now some of them wanted to make the labourers serfs again. Altogether the lords, and the labourers too, were very discontented with the changes caused by the terrible Black Death, and it was really this which brought about the peasants' revolt. There were even some people who said, as people called socialists say now, that there should not be rich people and poor people, but that all should be equal. One man who was a priest, and named John Ball, went about the country saying, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? He was called the Mad Priest of Kent. Another of these preachers was called Jack Straw, and another Grindcob. They were all taken and hanged before the end of the peasants' revolt. Some people said, too, that the peasants were encouraged by another priest, named John Wycliffe, but he had not really had anything to do with the revolt, except that he taught that priests should be poor, and that the church in England was too rich, and sent out priests of this kind to preach to the people. John Wycliffe was a teacher at Oxford, and a very clever man. Besides teaching that the church should be poor, he said, too, that the bread and wine which the church taught were changed into the body and blood of Christ in the Mass were not really changed. This was heresy, and Wycliffe was taken before the Archbishop of Canterbury to be examined on these things. He either denied that he had said them, or explained them in some way to which the Archbishop agreed, and so Wycliffe went safely back to his church at Lutterworth, where he lived for some years saying Mass and working as a priest, and then died. But for many years there were men who went on teaching these heresies of Wycliffe. They were called Lollards, and some of them were burnt to death in the 15th century. After the peasants' revolt, people settled down again, and as time went on, the quarrel between the landowners and the labourers died out. By the end of the Middle Ages, all the serfs in England were free, and all the men who worked on the landowners' farms were labourers who were paid with money. In France, too, during the wars of Edward III, there had been much discontent among the peasants. When King John of France was a prisoner in England, a terrible rebellion of the peasants broke out which was called the Jakery, as Jakes or James was an ordinary peasant name in France. The soldiers, who had no more fighting to do after the Battle of Poitiers, went about stealing from the people. The nobles, who had been taken prisoners by the English, made the people on their lands pay a great deal of money towards their ransom, and the French peasants had suffered from the terrible Black Death too. The French Parliament, which was called the States General, had very little power in France, and now they tried to get more, thinking they could help to make things better for the people. The Dauphin, as the French king's eldest son was always called, made promises which he did not mean to keep. 
and one of the chief men in Paris, called Etienne Marcel, got the people of Paris to attack the nobles of the court. Marcel himself forced his way into the palace and killed two of the greatest men of the court. Then all over France the peasants rose. The feudal castles were burnt, and great numbers of the nobles and their wives were killed. The French peasants had always been much more badly treated by their lords than the English, and now they took a terrible revenge. The Dauphin's wife and her ladies had shut themselves up in the town of Meur, and an angry crowd of peasants were attacking it, when they were attacked themselves by Gaston Phoebus, Count of Foix, and his friends. He fought heroically, and the serfs were scattered. After this they lost heart, and they were dreadfully punished, hunted down like wild beasts, and killed in thousands. The Jacquerie in France was a far more terrible thing than even the peasants' revolt in England. The First Great English Poet Yet though the story of the 14th century seems a sad one in many ways, it was the time when the first great English poet, Geoffrey Chaucer, lived and wrote. By this time there were French poets writing in French. In Italy, Petrarch had followed in the steps of Dante and written poems in the beautiful language of Tuscany, the part of Italy round Florence. Petrarch's best poems are his sonnets in honour of Madonna Laura, a lady whom he loved and who died of the plague in 1348. In England, at the end of the 13th century, some of the chroniclers of the monasteries had begun to write in English instead of Latin. In the next century, Wycliffe wrote his opinions in English and also translated part of the Bible into English. The poem called The Vision of Piers Plowman was written in English too, but Chaucer wrote the best poetry of all. He was born in London and was the son of a wine merchant. He himself had work at the court of Edward III and Richard II, and it was for the lords and ladies of the court that he wrote. But he wrote about what he saw around him, and his poetry, which is very musical and beautiful, is full of fun too. His chief work was the Canterbury Tales, in which Chaucer described a number of pilgrims on their way to the tomb of St Thomas Becket at Canterbury. He makes each of them tell a tale. By reading these poems, we can get a true idea of what life in England was like in Chaucer's time, and at the same time enjoy the first beautiful poetry written in English. End of chapter 26